Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Remember a year ago when at seven o'clock every evening people would go outside and and show their support for healthcare workers. I think in the UK they called it clap for carers as well. I think a year later they could use some of that support, but in different ways. Perhaps you may have seen this story that came out about the Abbotsford nurse who is pleading for people to take COVID-19 seriously. Uh, She was in tears because she said she just had another very tough day on the job. She took a picture during her breaking point right after she witnessed a COVID-19 patient go into cardiac arrest. Well, that breaking point for nurses has caught the attention of the Canadian Nurses Association. The question being, what can we do? What can government officials do? What can we do? to help out people like that nurse who is struggling like that. Joining us now is Tim Guest, the CEO of the Canadian Nurses Association. Tim, thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. Have you been hearing more stories like that? Uh, We have. Uh, We began hearing stories like that in the first wave uh, coming out of the long-term care sector um, in, in the East, and particularly in around Montreal, where... Uh, nurses were experiencing significant uh, shifts uh, with uh, uh, high numbers of deaths that were extremely difficult for them to cope with. And so uh, I, I, uh, it saddens me to see a colleague go through something like that. But I have to say I'm, I'm so pleased that she had the courage to come forward and, and show the public what uh, they're facing every day. And do you think we need more of that? Do you think the public needs to hear more stories like this so they can understand what's happening? Um, I, we, certainly, we've heard from uh, some uh, media uh, across the country over the last number of weeks that they feel nurses uh, don't speak out enough. Um, and, uh, and I think it is good for uh, the public to hear the perspective of nurses and what they're dealing with during this pandemic because I think um, it, uh, it does paint a more realistic picture of what this virus is doing to people and to families. And uh, I think points out pretty drastically what we as a collective need to do together to um, uh, slow that down and uh, avoid further uh, uh, pressure and, and explosion of uh, numbers of people that need that type of care. So what can we do then? How can we help? Well, I think there, there's a few things. Uh, I think the, the, the governments need to uh, take more uh, stringent public health measures, uh, I believe. Um, there's uh, lots of examples of where uh, public health guidelines are, are being uh, completely ignored. Uh, you know, we, we saw on the TV just last week of the multitudes of people on Vancouver beaches uh, we hear about Canadians coming into the country 
uh, flying into neighboring U.S. cities so they can take taxis across the border and not have to quarantine. You know, just a couple of examples uh, of, uh, you know, this virus travels into our country with people um, and it travels around the country with people. And so I, I think we have... Um, we have uh, a misconception that the vaccine is the only um, way out of this issue. And I think that's misguided. The, the way out of this issue is getting vaccinated and following public health guidelines. We have to do both collectively or we will stay in the situation much, much longer. How is the Canadian Nurses Association then helping nurses as well? Like, obviously, they're feeling a lot of stress. And is that, is that right across the country? Oh, definitely. We're, we are hearing it uh, coast to coast to coast um, in, in different uh, degrees, certainly in the, air, in the areas of the country with uh, high incidence. Uh, there's significant pressure on ICU nurses. Uh, we, we have heard from uh, nurses in long-term care earlier on in the pandemic that they were really stretched. And, um, you know, I have to also include nurses that work in public health. They have been working day in and day out um, since the pandemic began uh, doing um, contact tracing and, and testing and immunizing, and uh, it's all hands on deck. So how, how does that help them today? Like, if you want to get the message out to people to, hey, listen, pay attention to this, cut things down so that well, we don't see you in the hospital. Is that the message that you want to tell people? Definitely. We need to, we need to uh, you know, keep our social distancing. Uh, anything that we can do to avoid getting this virus and spreading it um, will decrease the number of people that get really sick and need to go into hospital and uh, need this ex- extraordinary ICU care. Um, we, we had um, many areas of the country were stretched before. There are many cities in Canada that a bus crash with 20 critical people would stretch our ICU capacity, let alone a global, global pandemic. And that hasn't improved, right? Like, I guess one of the things we were hoping is that this would help us to take seriously our healthcare system and appreciate that. Do you think that has happened, Tim, during this pandemic? I think so. I, you know, we certainly have seen effort on behalf of Canadians um, to do their part. Uh, certainly, uh, we see variation uh, across the country in the degree of which that's happened. Uh, I think the numbers on the map, when you look at uh, the incidence of, of COVID, speak for itself. Um, and um, there is more that, that we can do. Well, we'll see how we can help. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. That is Tim Guest, CEO of the Canadian Nurses Association, talking about the ways in which people out there, all of us, can support nurses after hearing stories from right across the country about what they are going through right now. You maybe have seen the story about the Abbotsford nurse. That's kind of what started this conversation. She has been pleading for people. She took a picture of herself during her breaking point because she witnessed a COVID-19 patient going into cardiac arrest. And yeah, that was trying, but she has seen too many cases like that. So she is pleading for people to take COVID-19 seriously they don't want to see you in the hospital any more than you want to be there. But there are steps that you can take to make sure that that doesn't happen. And she's saying, please make sure you do that and listen. So yeah, this is 
a big strain for people in the healthcare system. And we were very worried about that a year ago, but I wonder if people have kind of let that slip in this third wave. Uh, we don't do the clap for carers anymore. We don't do that, show our support for healthcare workers at seven o'clock at night. So maybe it's not front of mind, but yeah, they are suffering and they could use our support. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, we're in a race to get as many people vaccinated as possible. The idea being that if we can get enough people vaccinated, that we can look forward to a relatively COVID-free future. So are we on the right track to make that happen? Joining us now to talk about that is Carolyn Colane, SFU professor and Canada 150 research chair in mathematics for infection, evolution and public health. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. So we are on track, if you ask the government what we're doing, but what do you think about this plan? Are we vaccinating enough people? So we will need to vaccinate nearly everyone. And I think we are in a way on track. So the vaccines we have are great. It's amazing that we have, you know, a year after the pandemic started, we were able to start vaccinating people with highly effective and safe vaccines. Uh, But what we found is that if we vaccinate the number of people who say they're going to want a, a vaccine, and we don't vaccinate kids and youth because right now they're not approved, we're not really in a position to just completely reopen and go completely back to normal uh, because we've left too many people unprotected. And that's people who declined the vaccine, kids and youth, and people who, you know, a small minority, but there will be some people who get vaccinated and get infected anyway. And hopefully they still don't have severe disease, but that still puts the people around them at risk who haven't been vaccinated or are young. So the number I always hear then, Carolyn, is that we need 60% of the population, right, to get vaccinated before we can reach this kind of herd immunity? Well, we don't really know. And we we made our best guess for what, you know, how how well the virus that we have now, the B117 or P1, will be able to spread if we reopen everything. And that would have been, you know, to ours 2.5. But these are more transmissible. But maybe we can keep up our testing and contact tracing and we can keep up some of the things, you know, to make to make people a bit safer, but, but mostly reopen. So the 60% is our best guess, but we're not sure. You know, that's kind of an optimistic guess, like no further variant evolution. And we keep up a good job with our symptomatic testing and contact tracing. And some stuff is still in place. Right. So what do you so, think is a better, uh, yeah. no, what is a better number to aim for? What's a better number? I mean, it'd be great to protect everybody, right? If we could get 95% of people vaccinated and we vaccinate kids and youth, we would be in a huge, and we don't have more variants that arise that can infect people who've been vaccinated or, or make them sick, then it's great. It's a really optimistic picture. If we're vaccinating 70 to 85%, which are the, the numbers that, that surveys suggest, Canadians want, you know, vaccines, and we don't vaccinate kids, we're still pretty vulnerable because it's really, you know, on the edge between whether we're going to still have large rises at the end of that or not, if we just go back to normal. Right. So what are we doing enough, do you think, Carolyn, to convince people to get vaccinated? Or are we not doing enough to talk to those people who might have some vaccine hesitation? Yeah, I think we do need to, to have that messaging out there for, for people who are worried. And people, you know, are, people are smart. So, you know, they know that these vaccines are new technologies and know that they're approved by Health Canada. They maybe don't know the rigor of, you know, all the things that are done to make sure that vaccines are safe and all the things that are continually done. Like we're looking at the AstraZeneca data and the age guidelines are changing. That's because people are, are thinking about it really hard. I think so that messaging needs to be there. It needs to be there in communities, community specific 
ways. Right now, most Canadians haven't had access to a vaccine. So, you know, if you look around my local pharmacies, you can't get an appointment for love nor money. So right now, the issue is people who want vaccines and can't get them yet. But that will change as we have more vaccines. And at that point, you know, I think we need to be doing honest reporting about, you know, people who haven't been vaccinated, who sadly might end up in hospitals. And as people see that, and they see their friends and their families and their doctors and their their trusted community members and leaders being vaccinated, you know, hopefully they will also see that that these vaccines are safe and effective. So hopefully that'll change. Yeah, I feel like we should be making those plans now, though, because otherwise it's just going to all of a sudden be there and we'll have to deal with it. Right. We don't want to be in September thinking, wait, we thought we were going to reopen everything completely as normal, but it turns out we try that and we have another wave. (laughs) That's not what we want. So, and I think, you know, getting approval for vaccinating kids and youth is part of that and there are trials going on and I think we should expedite that and be ready for the logistics of vaccinating kids and youth when it it is approved, when we know it's it's safe to do that because high schools reopening under a regular plan, you know, we know teenagers can get COVID. Younger kids have been in school throughout and hopefully, you know, not that many exposures, but still they're they're doing a lot to control things, doing a lot of hand washing, a lot of masking, a lot of cohorting, a lot of parents can't see the schools and can't see the teachers. So, you know, being able to relax those measures would be really great for kids, high schools, especially. So getting getting them vaccinated, but also getting the, the main adult population in the UK, apparently over 55, I think it was, they were seeing 95 percent. If we could do that, it would really be fantastic. And what do you think of the take-up numbers so far? Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, I know they've been, we, we get reports on how many people are vaccinated. We don't. I haven't been seeing reports on how many people are saying, no, thank you. Some people might be saying, well, I'll wait a few weeks. And, you know, <laughs> that's fine. We wouldn't necessarily know that. So I don't think we really have a good indication. And it's a great question because apparently what people say they might do later about a choice like vaccination can be quite different to what they actually decide to do when the option is in front of them and they're in a context where their whole family is getting vaccinated or they've just seen their, you know, their friend in in hospital for COVID or, you know, people just make choices for, for things and these can change. So it's really hard to know. I know you ran some simulations on this, Carolyn. So what happens if you only, if we don't get enough people vaccinated? What happens if we only do get 50, 55% of the population vaccinated? Right. If we do that and then we decide we're just, you know, we're done, we're like as vaccinated as we're going to be, we just reopen. Then what happens is we see transmission and we see enough of it that it's actually a substantial pressure on the hospitals again. And that's in people who declined the vaccine and in people for whom the vaccine, unfortunately, because it's not 100, 100 percent, may still get infected and get sick anyway. That's going to be very rare. Um, but if you have a very rare thing and you have millions of people, it can still happen. And then, it, uh, of course, the infections, you know, you end up with them in, in the kids and youth, although they don't end up in hospital that much right now because of the modeling we did didn't include you know severe effects in the in the young which are i think just emerging a little bit more right now with uh, the variants so, right so the result is yet yeah, transmission mainly in people who aren't protected for one of those three reasons and enough of it that it's a problem not not just because there are cases but because there are enough severe outcomes and then we didn't really look at long covid but that's something that that should we should consider because those infections, you know, they, bad things can happen to you that aren't just hospitalization and death, but they're harder to right. count. So 
I feel like, though, the more people get vaccinated, because especially with that AstraZeneca take up this week, right, of the 40 plus, it seemed like everybody was talking about making that appointment and rushing out to get it. Will it become, if okay, you see more people doing it and you're like, okay, well, they seem to be okay. Maybe I'll get it done. Like, are we relying on that a little bit too much? I don't know if we're relying on it too much, but I hope it does happen um, for sure. And I think it probably will happen because people, you know, this is new. And as it becomes less new, it'll hopefully right. become more familiar and people will be more used to the idea and, and they'll wonder, you know, all oh, my friends are doing this and, uh, and I can do it too. That, that may go the other way. There may, there may be social groups of people who all decide, well, we won't do this. And they, of course, are at risk if they're in contact with each other. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I think the thing that, that I'm worried about is, you know, the virus has seen selection pressure in favor of becoming more transmissible and it has become more transmissible the next selection the virus is going to see is to get into people who've been vaccinated. And globally, this virus is very likely to figure out how to do that. So we need to be a bit on guard for those vaccine escape, right. you know, any new variants, or maybe it'll be a little cousin of P1 or one of the ones we already have that figures out how to do this better. And so that, of course, would mean, you know, boosters or more social distancing or uh, other challenges. And that's going to be something we need to we need to figure out a plan for Canada not to have those come here, spread across the country and establish themselves right. the way P1 and, and B117 have done. Just more for us to think about. Uh, Carolyn, thank uh, you so much for your time. Exactly. Right. You just summed yeah. it up right there with that. Thank you for your time this morning. <laughs> thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Big topic of discussion this morning has to do with our climate targets here in Canada. There is a virtual climate summit going on today. This has to do with world leaders from all over the world who are participating in this, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And at that summit, he announced that Canada is increasing the targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions to 40 to 45 percent of 2005 levels and to do it by 2030. So it's an increase of our previous commitment of 30%. Is that enough, though, in light of what other countries like the UK, like the United States, and what they're doing? Joining us now is Annamy Paul, Federal Green Party leader, to talk more about that. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. So what do you think of that target? Uh, what I know is that it is not enough. And what we see today is that uh, the government of Canada and the prime minister has said to the world that Canada is going to be less ambitious um, for its future and for the world's future and for uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, uh, that we were not seeking to be leaders on the climate. And we're also not seeking to build uh, the competitive economy of the future for Canada. Now, when you look at countries that are ambitious, which which country out there do you think, okay, you think they're taking this seriously? I mean, it's hard not to, it's hard, you know, there, there's so many examples, I don't even know where to start. Uh, this week alone, the 27 member states of the European Union, so these are some of the wealthiest countries in the world, they adopted a formal law to cut their emissions by at least 55% below 1990 level. So that's even more ambitious than the 2005 level. The United Kingdom announced a 78% um, emissions reduction target from 1990 levels. And as we know, our closest um, ally and partner, the U.S., has announced a 50 to 52% reduction target. So all over the world, 
our closest partners and allies are saying, we want to be ambitious. These are the targets that are necessary. And these are the things that are going to set up our economies for the future. And Canada is standing alone, um, you know, establishing targets that these other countries had years ago and chose to leave behind this week. So what are we actually planning to do to reach that target? Like an announcement is one thing, but what are we doing to make it happen? Well, that is an excellent question. And, you know, we, I, 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 when it comes to the climate uh, a lot, you know, I, I feel it's very important as the leader of the Green Party to be very frank. You know, we're very cooperative and collaborative, but, you know, this, this is just one of these things we have to be clear with people in Canada about. Uh, as the sun sets today, we will still not have a climate plan, even to meet the target that was set today. We didn't see it included in the budget. Uh, we haven't done a whole-of-government review. We still continue to bring online projects, pipeline projects, and oil exploration, et cetera, that is completely incompatible, even with the goal of 30%. Uh, so, I've, unfortunately, right now, there there is not a plan. The government of Canada does not have a plan to meet any of the targets that it has set, and it has never met those targets. Uh, our party has a plan, and as we can see, our international allies not only have plans, but they put money behind their plans as well. So how would you classify what Canada is doing then? It seems like, you know, when this government was elected the first time back in 2015, um, there was a lot of talk about this. Have they followed through on that? Well, it's been six years, Simi, and in six years, uh, we have continued to be uh, one of the top five worst emitters per capita in the world for greenhouse gases. We have never come close to hitting any of our targets, including the the 30% target. And even last year, in the midst of the the pandemic and the economic slowdown uh, associated with it, our greenhouse gas emissions increased. Uh, and so we, we have no, we have nothing to show uh, for um, for the words after six, almost six years uh, with this particular government. Uh, we continue to be one of the worst polluters in the world. And the, again, the target that we set today is is so unambitious compared to our international allies. And I would say, as a proud Canadian, if they can do it in the European Union and the United States and the United Kingdom. I believe Canada can do it. We have everything that it takes uh, to be a global leader in reducing greenhouse gases and making sure that we have the competitive economy of the future. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's Annamie Paul, federal Green Party leader, responding to the announcement this morning from Prime Minister Trudeau that Canada is increasing our targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions to 40 to 45 percent of 2005 levels by 2030. That might sound good, except that we are actually increasingly being left in the dust by other countries. For instance, the Biden administration in the U.S. has pledged to slash U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent of 2005 levels by 2030. And they're hoping to set an example so that other big countries, and China's part of this, by the way, Climate Summit today too, hoping that they will follow. So Canada's not matching what countries like the UK and the United States doing at this point. This is Mornings with Simi.
You know, it's been fascinating over the last year to see how our entertainment consumption habits have changed because of the pandemic. Uh, we're at home more, so we're watching more TV. Are we watching more streaming services? Are we consuming more television time? Are we watching it on our laptop? What are we signing up for? What are we paying for? So many great questions. And a new report from Insights West has kind of been diving into the answers to those questions. They surveyed 1,600 Canadian adults about it. So now we're going to learn about this. Joining us is Steve Mossett, president at Insights West. Steve, thanks for being here. Thank you, Simi. Okay, this is fascinating. So what did you ask people about? Wow, it really is. You know, in all the years that I've done tracking of things of this sort, there's been such an, a huge amount of change in one year. And one, one example is this. One jumps out at me is that social media has now taken over any other uh, mechanism to consume our daily news. So social media is number one. Uh, 50% of us get our news from social media. Two has slipped into the number two spot. Uh, newspapers way down the list, of course, but uh, those numbers have, have increased dramatically. I mean, it's really been driven by the 18 to 34-year-olds. 85% of those in that category get their daily news from social media. That's a shockingly high number. It really is. And, you know, this report is loaded with, with other things like that. And you're right, you know, we're all locked down and we're, we're on Netflix and we always talk about what shows we're watching. Uh, but just the amount uh, that, that people are consuming, it really caught me off guard. If you look at, uh, there's 82% of Canadians who currently have a streaming service. But half of them, 50%, acquired that service in the past 12 months. So think of that growth. It's you know it's over 100% growth in a year, and of course Netflix is up there. But uh, you know we all saw the advent of Disney Plus and Amazon Prime. It's just fascinating to think that you know half of all subscriptions occurred in the past 12 months. And how are people watching this? Like, are they spending more time on their screens? They are. You know, you know it's like, that's increased by about 30% uh, or the last time we measured it. So, yeah, we, we, we wanted to get out and exercise, but the, the lure of uh, Netflix and Disney Plus is, is calling. Right, and so Disney Plus must have seen a huge amount of growth. It is. I mean, it went from uh, zero to, to almost 53% of Canadians have a subscription. Or, sorry, 27%. Amazon Prime has 53%. Uh, Disney has 27%, and it came out of the gate just over a year ago. That is amazing. Now, what about streaming audio? Because I th- for me, I've now stream more audio than I did a year ago because I'm home more, whether it's for my workouts, whatever it is, I'm listening to more of that. Uh, that's exactly the case, too. So 52% of us uh, stream audio, and of that 52%, uh, about 20% have done so uh, have done that in the past year. And Spotify at the top of the list, but Amazon and Apple Music and other streaming services have really, really come on board. Right. Okay. So what is this? Are we spending more time at home then, Steve? Is that what this shows us? <laughs> you know, you think of the polls that we, we did about six months ago, and we asked what people are doing more of and what they're doing less of. And, you know, there's a segment of us, uh, about 20% that are exercising more, but 40% of us are not. So we have all these, all these negative trends converging to us uh, being stuck in front of our computer screens or television. That is amazing then. So this, you'd think that this would mean that there are more options out there too, but it sounds like from what you surveyed, people are sticking to kind of a, a, a small group of options. They are. It really is uh, uh, almost an oligopy. It's, and the term being, it's a very concentrated industry. There's only a few big players. And the folks that have been hurt really is the cable service providers. You know, they're the ones that have dipped to about 65% now of Canadians have cable. 
uh, versus the streaming service at 82%. I guess you also wonder then, where is the growth for some of these streaming services when your, when your survey showed that something like 70% of people subscribe to Netflix? How many more people can sign on? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Netflix came out just the other day with their earnings and did say that it, there has been a, a lack of growth in new subscribers. But we also surveyed people about their expected change in media use post-pandemic. So we asked when things get back to normal, what do you think you'll do? And the vast majority, especially when it comes to uh, audio streaming and, and video streaming services, the vast majority are saying, well, I like it, I'm going to keep it. And we thought there would have been more drop-off than what, what we're seeing. So can you add up like the hours that people are spending? Can we see that there is more time being spent on using all of the stuff? Uh, I don't have that right in front of me, but yeah, if, if I recall right, it was about 30% increase in the number of hours that people are spending. Wow. So something in the range of 20 hours per week per person uh, spent on, on uh, video, video streaming and television watching. That's crazy. So what else did you find really interesting in this survey? Um, I think the biggest differences occur when we look at age groups. And it's really quite fascinating when you, when you do the breakdown, you look at, uh, for example, even just traditional newspapers, and you see that, uh, let me get the number in here. So 44% of Canadians 55 plus still get their daily news from a print version of the newspaper. And that number just completely falls off the map when you look at other, uh, other age groups. And like I said, the 85% of, of 18 to 34 is now get their news consumption on social media. So are there lessons here, do you think, to be learned for some of these media companies, Steve? Change, change is, uh, like I say, it was it's probably the fastest pace of change that we've ever seen. And, and the other thing that jumped out, I'm just looking at a number here, where uh, social media usage for news has increased in BC more than anywhere else. So 82% of British Columbians get their weekly news from social media, and it's about 15 or 18 points lower in all the other provinces. Not sure why that's happening. That is amazing stuff. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining us to talk about it. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate that. That's Steve Mossett, President of Insights West. They have just done this comprehensive survey of how people, you out there, are consuming video, audio, news, media, all that information. And what they found that, like, just using the example of, of video streaming, for one thing, like like a platform like Netflix, for instance, they found that overall, with all age groups, 82% of people said that they pay for some kind of video streaming service compared to 65% of people who say that they pay for some kind of traditional TV cable service. And of course, that varied a little bit with different age groups. Looking at the 18 to 34 age category, 90% of them said that they pay for some kind of you know, st- video streaming service, but only 43% of that age group said they pay for a traditional TV type of service. But when you get up into the older category, say 55 plus, 73% said they pay for a video streaming service, but 82% said they still pay for, they pay for traditional TV as well. So it really does depend, but overall 82%. So what are people paying for? What are you subscribing to? 70% said they subscribed to Netflix. No surprise there. The next highest at 53% was Amazon. That would be Amazon Prime, of course. Uh, 27% of people also subscribing to some relatively new services like Disney+. Plus. But again, these are all like little things that add to your bill, right? There is more and more. How many people pay for streaming audio? A service like, say, Spotify. 
52% said that they pay for streaming audio of some kind. Uh, Spotify was the number one choice for people. The next highest was Amazon Prime. So as you can tell, there's all these little things that are adding up. Now, how do you consume your news? The majority of people said under the age of 55, social media is number one for those under the age of 55 uh, to consume their news, whether, you know, however they do that, whatever particular social media website they use. Websites and apps were second on the list. If you're over the age of 55, you still turn the most to TV, followed by thank you, radio. So there's still definitely people out there using us for their news, which is good. Uh, but yeah, really fascinating look at how we are consuming uh, different video and audio aspects, where we're getting our news and our information from. No surprise that during the pandemic, as well as Steve told us, that number has gone up by 30%. We are now consuming 30% more screen time for, you know, whether it's entertainment, news, whatever it is, more than we were before the pandemic started.